0: WBAI New York at ninety nine point five FM and WBAI.org on the web. Stay tuned for Trauma Code up next.
1: Ooh, man. she begging forgive us this sin and sinners all the time.
0: Ooh.
2: Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist.
3: And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist.
2: Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma.
3: We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on W. So them I go
1: make walk before we free. What dem I go make walk before we freeze? Tie my neck, ship it don't work. Find me to three, I survive the wheel sea with the crack. We'll see who survived, make free. Yeah. So then I go make war yeah. before we're free. One day I go make war before we're free. free. So then I go make war yeah. before we're free. One day I go make war before we're free. Follow, follow.
4: People, they know they Follow. follow. They see me like a genie, try to keep me in a bottle. Petty petty people keep them in They tie you up in strings, and play m- like Pizzicato. Lose sight of the picture, scripture now, they not so steady. Meanwhile, I'm like Curtis Mayfield, getting people ready. See into the future, then cut through like a machete or cutlass All these trappers leaving with gutless. You can't make me suggest.
2: Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. Uh for Uh, Today's show Monday May 8th with my lovely co-host
3: Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Good afternoon and happy Monday everybody. Uh, we have an excellent show for you today, one that I'm particularly excited about. We have uh, Miss Shawnee Benton Gibson with us today, and uh, we're going to be discussing black maternal mortality, a topic that is very, very dear to me and very dear to many people. And I'm hoping that at the end of the show, many more of you will also understand the crises that is the black maternal mortality epidemic. Um, but... Before we get into that, because we're going to go deep into it, I'm going to let Dr. Fitzgerald do a few headlines, and uh, we'll introduce Miss Gibson on the other side of that.
2: And uh, before we forget that music was uh, Black Woman, right, from Lauren Hill and Fatumata Diawara, is that about That's right, right.
3: that's from the, the Heart of the Fall soundtrack. Um, I felt it spoke to what we're going to be talking about today, I have... A few other pieces of music that I'm excited to play today, but I know that Miss Gibson is going to have so much to say, um, and I don't want to cut her time short. But I also hope to sneak in some musical Easter eggs for you guys.
2: And uh, and always great to hear Lauren Hill back on the mic. Um, and I don't want to take up too much time. Uh, you know, this show is called Trauma Code. What I do for a living is trauma surgery, and part of my uh, motivation is to address the epidemic of gun violence in the country right now. Uh, which, uh, you know, continues unabated. I think we're beyond 200 mass shootings for the year for the country, 203 last I checked, but I'm, I'm you know, 50% chance that's gone up since I last checked. Um, uh, and, you know, in addition to those mass shootings in Texas, uh, which I'm not even going to go into the details, they're they're horrible, they're out there, and they're a reminder um, that, you know, the legislative decisions policy and executive decisions have consequences. Um, and uh, you know the other uh, mass tragedy was also in Texas, a, a vehicular manslaughter, vehicular homicide of Venezuelan migrants outside of a um, outside of a, a, you know a migrant housing shelter uh, organization. So you know our rhetoric and our policy decisions have consequences, and so that's why today we're not covering gun violence, but we are covering an important. Uh, topic uh, of health and concern for our community where our... And implicating
3: systemic violence. I mean, that's...
2: For sure. And and our language us. and our poly decisions um, have consequences. So, Cassandra, you want to tell us a little bit more about what to expect on today's show?
3: Sure. We're going to hear today from Ms. Shawnee Benton-Gibson. As I said, she is a fierce advocate for reproductive justice. Um, just to give you a little flavor of Ms. Benton-Gibson's uh, kind of ideology she says activism is a labor of love of love and liberation, and I, I'm sure she 's going to share all of that with you all today. So right on the other side of this musical clip, we will introduce her and um, get to hear all her insights i 'm very much looking forward to it.
2: So. no
0: woman, no cry no. do
3: Raphael here for today's show. As I said, we're going to be talking about maternal mortality, specifically black maternal mortality and the epidemic that is black maternal mortality. We have on the line Ms. Shawnee Benton Gibson, a master's of social work and also FDLC, and she's the CEO of Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute and the co founder of the ARIA Foundation. Uh, Miss Shawnee has over 32 years of experience and expertise in women's leadership, youth development, reproductive justice, racial equity, individual and group counseling, trauma, and bereavement. She combines those skills with her spiritual and artistic gifts, and those allow Ms. Shawnee to guide individuals as they they navigate various uh, phases of their lives. And Ms. Shawnee employs employs a holistic, cultural, and spiritual approach to her work. She utilizes a social justice lens as a foundational principle for her service to her community. Her primary healing tools consist of spiritual counseling, vision coaching, psychodrama, sociometry, sacred rituals, uh, energy work and performing arts, and storytelling as mediums to ignite transformation and initiate catharsis. Mishani is the subject of an award-winning documentary called Aftershock. And that film follows Mishani and her family as they fight for reproductive justice in the wake of the tragic and preventable death of Shani's eldest daughter, Shemani Makiba. Gibson, um, that's uh, basically a flavor of what Miss Shawnee has to offer. She has much more to share with us today. And one of the first questions that I want to get into, Miss Shawnee, uh, is about her important and interesting work with uh, Black maternal mortality, and reproductive justice, and that she came to our attention because of that work. Um, and sadly, a lot of that work starts with your daughter, uh, Miss Shawnee. Are you there?
4: Yes, I'm here. Greetings to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us.
3: It's our pleasure. It's our absolute pleasure. Um, so a mouthful, you do so much. And, and I can say uh, that I learned of you and your work because or through the Aftershock documentary. And since then, especially more recently, I've been following a lot of the events that you've been doing uh, surrounding black maternal mortality, as well as maternal health in general, maternal mental health, peripartum work, and, um, but it seems that your interest in that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to start sadly with your own daughter. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, Miss Shamani Makiba Gibson?
4: Yes, and thank you for saying her full name. Yes, yes, of course. I appreciate that so much. Um, we can't say her name enough um, and the others like her that have been lost tragically to this scourge of maternal mortality. Um, actually, my work um, started in reproductive justice many years ago and um, I'm a performance artist and I didn't even realize that I was being prepared for such a time as this, Mm -hmm. just playing particular parts that I played over the course of my life. I'll say more about that later, but um, Shimani had um, exposure to reproductive justice work and birth equity work um, by way of me um, creating a conference actually with my second daughter, Jasmine, Jasmine, um, was a premature baby she was born with a birth defect shortly after she came into the world i was seven months pregnant when i went into labor with her
0: Mm, wow Um, i
4: experienced severe postpartum depression um she had to have surgery and so she was in the hospital for 30 days um you know after she was born and when she came home um well even before she came home i had struggles just relating to her as my baby um, I didn't know what was happening with me. I had like all of these do- thoughts. Now I know they were delusional thoughts about um, just her not being mine and um, that disconnect. And it led to me doing things that, you know, retrospectively I could have easily been a statistic acting on those thoughts, um, on taking, harming myself, harming her. Um, so, you know, my work started with my own lived experience around postpartum depression and psychoses. And um, you know, because we're artists in my family, Shimani was an artist, many, many gifts, my daughter Jasmine, my son, myself, um, You know, because we were artists, we wanted to approach um, looking at these birth traumas and these stigmatized experiences, especially postpartum depression, um, utilizing art. So um, we did a play. We wrote an original play with original music, um, and we performed it in Brooklyn. And we had such a great reception from the audience and we had talk backs and people were like, well, what about, because we, we focused on postpartum depression, they were like, what about stillbirth? What about infertility? What about preterm, like all of these things that had right. not been considered. And then we went back to the drawing board and started to write more about these issues. So Shimani was involved with the work uh, since 2010, just being in inside of these conversations, which evolved from a play into a conference. And so the mother Week conference that I do, I've been doing for over a decade, a very burst. And we talk about it in the film. Like I had a lot of knowledge and so did Shimani and the rest of my family, but it still wasn't enough to save her. Right. And so my work has just expanded um, because her, of her death. But I was already in the conversation for many, many years.
3: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, you have so much lived experience uh, yes. on various aspects yeah. of, of maternal mm-hmm. wellness and maternal health. Yeah. that inform and kind of, uh, c- can I say drive the the work that you're doing um, mm-hmm. so gracefully and with so much, with so much passion and so much engagement from, from the community. It's really beautiful to see. I've been, as you know, I've been attending many of the events that you've been hosting for the past, at least month of, um, of maternal health, black maternal health uh, week and postpartum and and peripartum issues. So I'm, I'm very glad to, to receive that.
0: And
4: And thank you for the support and the covering too. Like we need everybody in the conversation and because of the platform that the two of you have, that means more listeners will be exposed to this, no matter what walk of life they're in, like the entire community needs to be a part of this conversation because what I say is it's an existential crisis If we can't birth safely. Then we won't exist anymore as a people.
2: And I, I also thank you, you know, for being forthcoming about, uh, your own history and your family's history, um, because even, you know, just what you've told us is already a rich history, um, on this topic, uh, you know, uh, community activism in New York and in Brooklyn. But the fulcrum of this story, um, if you don't, you know, hopefully not being too forward, um, but you've spoken about it a lot, the fulcrum is, uh, your own daughter's, uh, death as a result of sort of mismanagement of her pregnancy. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about about that and the ripple effects of that and, and how that has changed the trajectory, influenced the trajectory of your life and your work?
4: Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting, the bridge, um, and that's a common thing. It actually will uh, be something that I talk about as we get further in the conversation. But um, Shimani, black woman, Um, knowledgeable, entering into a space of wanting to have her second child, really excited about it. And in fact, just to be honest, I was like, wait, you know, because her baby girl was two. And I'm like, just wait a little longer, you know, live a little bit more before you bring another baby into the world. But she was adamant about moving forward. And her and her partner went away in December of 2018 um, on a trip. I think they went to the Caribbean and came back and were pregnant um, she announced it right away as soon as she was aware of the fact that, you know, she had missed her um, menstrual cycle. And then she was like, okay, we're preparing for a baby. Okay, great. Did everything that was necessary, but she wanted her experience to be different for the second time because the first time she had a C-section, she didn't feel like the hospital honored um, what her needs were. And she was like, I just want this to be different. Even though the first time she had a midwife and a doula, she just wanted it to unfold differently, and she wanted to have a home birth and a back. Which for the listening audience is a vaginal birth after C-section because the formula is if you've had a, a, a C-section, then you you'll never be able to have a vaginal birth, which is untrue for many people. Um, but it's pushed. So she was preparing for that. Um, went into labor at home. We had all the equipment and stuff for her to prepare to give birth at home. And she stopped progressing after her water broke. So she, on the advice of her midwife, she went to the hospital where the midwife was connected. And, you know, I had a friend that, you know, was um, a leader in that space, reached out to them so we could prepare to go to the hospital. And things went well. They were trying to give her an opportunity to progress and move through the um, process to see if she would be able to have a vaginal birth. That did not work out. Um, I think we were like two days in or almost two days in, and they, you know, came to her and, like, were asking her if she was okay with having a C-section. And she said okay. She felt comfortable because they gave her a chance. And then she had the C-section, all seemed to go well. And then shortly after she was discharged from the hospital, she started to have shortness of breath. Um, She would go down the stairs and wouldn't be able to come back up the stairs. And she was really, really worried. And so we did what we do as a family, just being in these conversations, which is to call the providers, speak about what was going on. And she had to go and get her staples removed at the hospital. And she went and she was telling them about the symptoms. And they kept telling her she was doing too much. She needed to lay down. And just relax. And so we went into action to make sure she was covered in that way. You know, people preparing food, going to the house, leaving her with the baby who she was breastfeeding. And that was the worst thing that she could have ever done because she had blood clots that were causing the symptoms. And those blood clots moved to her legs and it got worse when she was, um, what do you call it, sedentary. And then it quickly moved to her lungs and then it stopped her heart. And she died um, on October 6th. 15 hours after she went into distress, medical distress, um, you know, in 2019. So, you know, it was just really yeah, was tragic, funny. and it was definitely preventable.
2: And I, I want to get into um, a lot of that part of the preventable, what what actions uh, we can take. Um, but, you know, yeah, just to be present in that moment with you a little bit, you've talked a lot in your work about the ripple effects of this loss. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about that uh, just a little bit now before we talk more about broader systemic issues?
4: Sure. Thank you for the question. So um, first and foremost, you're listening to someone who literally watched my daughter on the 5th of October in 2019, laughing, joking, eating, breastfeeding, being cared for by her partner, and within a couple of hours went into medical distress. So then I witnessed her eyes widening, her um, panting for breath, her calling out to me and asking me to help her, her calling to her partner, her um, not being able when the ambulance came to sit still because she was fighting for her life with them making her wrong because she was doing what anybody would do in distress and shock, which is to flail and try to fight for um, their lives in those moments. And she was in shock. Um, I, I watched and experienced the, um, the, the EMTs, Asking me over and over again, the fire department, the police department that came asking me if she was on drugs, even though I told them immediately that she had just had a baby. She had a C-section. We showed them the dressings on a C-section, but they kept coming in asking if she was on drugs. Um, watching her fight for her life in the hospital, a hospital she should have never been in, but it was the closest hospital to her house, even though the hospital where she delivered was only two more blocks away or maybe three they had to, by procedure, to take her to the closer hospital, which was divested from in a very poor hospital in, in state um, that it was in. But it's in that community, and Bet's died, so they took her there, and then just to watch her die in that space um, under those circumstances was devastating. So the trauma impact on me and my family, um, with witnessing and hearing her last bits of life, her last heartbeats devastating and I'm also grateful that I was there. I was there for her first breath and cry and I was also there for her last breath so it's bittersweet. Um, Also thinking about her children you know we just had the Easter holiday and we were all together. We just had a big family event where we celebrated with community. She wasn't there but pictures of her were there and she was very much involved with these activities. The financial loss because she had two businesses Artful Living with her partner and then her own natural hair care business loss of resources for her and her family because she's not here to generate that income. Trust in systems has been lost, even though we were teetering or not trusting them anyway. Now it's like completely like cannot trust anything because of how she was treated. And then what I say and teach as a clinician and as a facilitator is that we get robbed by trauma. Trauma impacts you and alters your DNA. So everybody in our family has been devastated by this loss the sister and brother she's left behind, her partner, her children, and all of the, the extended, community, extended community members that she impacted while she was here. So there are ripples beyond ripples, some that we will not see for, for years from now.
2: Wow. And, you know, as we think about the ripple effect of these laws, I think the what makes this story so compelling is that it's not a unique or isolated incident, right? It's part of a systemic problem, Um, And and the film uh, shares statistics, which are, you know, available in academic literature as well, that, um, you know, maternal mortality, uh, you know, this kind of loss is about three uh, times
3: more common for black women than it is for white women. And
2: even the baseline for the United States does not compare uh, favorably with, uh, you know, economically similar countries uh, in Europe, Australia, Japan, elsewhere. So, um, you know, what have you learned about you know, specifically racism in medicine, but these systemic issues um, that you've come across in your work, particularly since um, the loss of your daughter.
4: Sure, yeah, so just a comparison, um, the United States compared to other so-called modern or industrialized countries is doing abysmally when it comes to reproductive health, and just healthcare in general, it's horrific, but this particular area where we're doing really poorly and um, it's leading to loss of life. Um, when I think about other countries um, that have integrated midwifery and doula care um, and also give folks extended leave, you know, family leave, paid leave, mm-hmm. even, for um, the birthing person, the mother, um, Just we, we just are just doing we, – we don't honor the sacredness of birth in this country. We've commodified it. We've medicalized it. We've taken midwives out of the equation. We barely respect and honor doulas and, you know, we'll be dismissive because they're not medically trained. Um, There's a lot of layers that lead to this issue, but it also goes back to the historical framework, which the Aftershock documentary goes into very um, in-depthly about the history of enslavement of African people and bringing us here and um, treating us like, uh, like utilizing structures for animal husbandry to care for black women you know when they're pregnant and um, you know giving birth to babies having them give birth and then immediately go back to work or give birth in the fields and that legacy that scourge of enslavement is still having its effect and its impact on our people um, we're not viewed as the same as our white counterparts even as it relates to pain and i'm sure you both are aware of this because it's talked about across like issues regarding medicine um and practice that we're not viewed as um, dealing with, we're we're believed to be able to deal with pain more than our white counterparts. And that's in itself. But without all the other stuff that I've talked about, that in itself is dangerous, thinking that if I'm saying that I'm in pain, I'm exaggerating, or I can tolerate it for more hours, um, tolerate less um, uh, resources or medicine to take care of it, it's really problematic, and it's definitely contributed to the outcomes that we see with birthing and postpartum, um, you know, for black and Brown folk. Right.
3: Right. I think that was one of the things that I, um, found, I mean, it was all the, the, the entire film of Aftershock was just so insightful. One of the things that kind of spoke to me a lot just based on my own profession is the, I guess, complicitness of, of, of physicians historically in kind of, as you say, uh, commodifying uh, birthing and midwifery and um, making the credentials practically inaccessible to women of color who have been doing this for generations and generations. Um, when I went to go see the screening of Aftershock at the Brooklyn Museum, I guess that was last year. Um, you you'd mentioned in that panel and this is something that i agree with so i want to bring it up and i want to give you the chance to say anything more about it if you wish to um, that training black doctors well we we know that this is important training people who look like the people that they serve training doctors to 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 practice medicine who look like the patients is particularly important and recently there was this uh, article in the journal of the american American Medical Association saying that when you have more black doctors, even in the county, the outcomes for black patients improve. So there's data, right? We know this. The point that you were making that I want to get back to is that even if you train up black doctors in a system that devalues black life, you're not necessarily going to have, you know what I mean, like you're gonna practice medicine from a certain perspective, unless you're aware and, and and mindful of your own biases and the biases in the system that you were trained in, it's still risky, you know? And uh, I can say personally, and I know Dr. Fitzgerald, it's, it's very much the same story. In fact, Dr. Fitzgerald has actually put me on to several authors as well to do the work for me, being black immediately, um, connects me to my patients in a certain way. But reading Dr. Chester Pierce, uh, reading Dorothy Roberts, and and more colloquially, Bell Hooks, James Baldwin, lets me consider the black experience in a certain way that that, um, informs how I do my patient care. So
4: all that to say
3: that, uh, sorry, go ahead.
4: No, no, no. You finish your sentence and I'll definitely jump in. You've got uh, stuff stirring inside of me for sure. But go ahead. Say what you were going to say.
3: I just wanted to emphasize that that particular point, that training black doctors mm-hmm. is extremely important, training black doctors in a way and training all doctors in a way that is culturally uh, sensitive, culturally aware um, informed in history of the Black person's experience of the Western medicine in this country is important. And the the person of color's experience in Western medicine in this country is important. That has to be a part of what we're learning to be able to do the job the way we want to do the job, uh, the way uh, in order to do the job in an equitable way, I should say. Right. Please go I ahead, Miss Johnny.
4: Yes, thank you. So what first comes up for me is a quote from Audre Lorde, mm. um, and she talks about how the master's tools will never dismantle the ma- master's house. So um, while, you know, the medical system and its development, you know, it saved many lives. Surgery saves lives. Um, the interventions that are taken, um, you know, that any folk in this country experience, whether it's trauma. You know, I heard you mention about the shootings, You know, I do work in that regard, too. I work with Cure Violence which addresses um, credible messages um, addressing violence in the community, especially here locally in the city, in the five boroughs, um, doing that work. But um, yeah, you know, us operating from a space and in a system that was not designed to really um, align with who we are as human beings, um, where there's all these levels of inequity across systems, not just the medical system, you know, food and housing and transportation, like everything you can think of. um, It's, is stru- structurally set up for us not to do well, and there's nobody pressing a button like the Wiz in the Wizard of Oz, right. like making that happen for us. It's insidious, it's um, invisible to some degree, and it's um, very oppressive, and it's bearing down on us. There's a term called weathering um, that they have looked at for um, black and brown folks who are um, pregnant and carrying children and delivering their children And just the price and the cost of being black and the burden that comes with it makes it unsafe for us on so many different levels. It makes it much harder for our bodies to do what they need to do, to breathe, to co-create, to do all of it. And that's research that's been done. That's not just the Shawnee Benton Gibson thing. The next thing that I think about um, with regard to what you shared and some of the scholars you mentioned was Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid. Mm, You know, just thinking about the legacy of experimentation on our people, on black Americans since, you know, our enslavement or the times of colonial times and just the implications for all of that and how some of that mindset is still ingrained. So to be in these times, 2023, and to have scholarly people, brilliant folks saying, whoa, your skin is different and we don't make you feel pain the same. It's so weird. There's no clinical or research um, backing that belief system, but it gets, gets carried over and over and over again from the legacy of racism and um, enslavement. And the final thing that I'll say, you know, because I going to make sure this is a co-created conversation, is that I un- unapologetically talk about the impact of white supremacy culture, not just on BIPOC folks, But also on white people, the implications for all of us living in this system where you're taught that, you know, quantity over quality, where you're taught um, that we need to be enslaved by the written word. Like if it's not in research, it doesn't exist, even though BIPOC folk, our lived experience, how we view music, like the music you play, like we have so much competence and brilliance in us that has nothing to do with books or research it just is and that is actually not honored and especially our voices when we're saying that we need support or we're going through something when we're in medical crisis or even when we're just going to get general checkups we're just dismissed and sometimes that dismissal comes by oppressed people who look just like us
2: and uh you know if you're just joining us on the radio this is trauma code on wbai and we're discussing racism and mat- mor- uh, maternal mortality with uh shawnee uh, benton gibson uh, and, you know, a couple of recommendations that have come up, the, the Medical Apartheid book by Harriet Washington is definitely going to be on my to-do list. Um, and as well, we keep referencing, for people who didn't catch it, a movie called Aftershock, um, which interestingly was produced by Paula Isolt and Spike Lee's wife, Tanya Lewis-Lee, um, an excellent film uh, that has a lot of information on this topic, very well framed, I think, um, within the legacy of racism, uh, in obstetrics and in medicine. Um, and, you and know, also
3: it also covers what, um, I guess it also covers folks trying to do things differently in terms of their own medical care and their own peripartum care, uh, which is kind of a highlight because you realize how, uh, scarce or seemingly inaccessible, um, a different birthing experience feels, uh, in this country. Um, so on that on that note, Miss Miss Benson Gibson, I want to ask you what what have you been doing? I mean, I know but please let our <laughs> listeners know, what have you been doing to change this current reality?
4: Yes. Thank you once again for the question. I definitely want to share. I'm trying to wrap my brain around all the stuff that's happening. <laughs> so um prior to the film, you know, as I shared just Reading and hosting an annual conference called the Mother Conference so that we can talk about the darker side of reproductive health and what creates the space where we would have to be worried about doing the most natural thing, which is to bring new life into the world. So that out the gate is happening. And the film, Aftershock, is on Hulu. And it's, um, you know, you can access that if you have an account, or you can create a space to watch it and, and you know, create an account, watch a it, and then release the account. Right. I'm not telling you what to do, but. <laughs> Um, you know, that's an option too. Um, the other pieces that, um, I'm involved with, like right now, we're in the week of the National, um, Postpartum Awareness Week campaign. Um, I'm, I co-produced that with two other mothers who lost their daughters. One lost their daughter 20 years ago. Um, and she lives in California. That mom, her name is Maddie Oden. And then the second mom, who you, you may be aware of, cause she's like out there on a the national level, her name is Wanda Irving and her daughter, yes. Um, Dr. Shalon Irving worked for the CDC, did research around reproductive health, talked about the inequities, wanted to do things to dismantle that through research. And then she died um, within three weeks of giving birth to her baby girl because she wasn't listened to when she was sharing as a doctor what was going on with her. Someone who was very knowledgeable about reproductive health and then also postpartum and ended up dying because once again, knowledge is not enough to save you. Um, So that week-long process of examining the postpartum period. The fourth trimester is happening right now. We launched yesterday, and it's happening in virtual space each night for the rest of this week until Friday um, and from 7 to 9 p.m. on Zoom and then being bridged into Facebook. And then the final um, event is happening at Brooklyn College, and we're grateful for the hosting there um, so that we can close out the week. And we're going to do this. perpetuity well let me change my language we're gonna do this until it's no longer needed because we have to pay attention to what happens to folks postpartum because we're more likely to die within one day or during our birthing process and then up until one year after we give birth so we're not safe I'm doing air quotes into a year and a day after we've given birth and it's terrible it's crazy so those are just some of the things that are happening out in the world And we'll continue to do And I have the ARIA Foundation, of course, where we provide support, education. We do speaking engagements around the country. I do training workshops and development for folks using the themes from Aftershock. So there's a lot going on, and I have partnership because we cannot do this work without partners. We have to de-silo the work and co-create with one another because we're not going to shift anything if we are siloed and holding on to just our own territory. Wow.
3: Part of the reason why I'm so happy that you're here with us today to uh, let our listeners know how they can be a part of what what we're working on here uh, for Black mm-hmm. maternal mortality and for and, and decreasing Black maternal mortality. Um, mm-hmm. you've, you've mentioned a few events. Is there anything that we as individuals, like listeners, can do um, to, to to join in? I mean, you've, you've mentioned the events, oh, but absolutely. how can they learn more or, or participate or be present?
4: Absolutely. So, once again, it's the National Postpartum Awareness Week campaign. It just was launched yesterday. This is the inaugural um, campaign. So, it hasn't been done before because we recognize the need. You can go on Instagram if you have uh, an account or start an account even for this purpose and um, uh, go to at change. So, the three women, myself and the two other women that I mentioned, Maddie and Wanda, we met in 2020 as grandparents who had lost our, our daughters, and then we decided that we wanted to do something for the Black Maternal Health Week um, that happens each each year from April 11th to the 17th. Once we did that, it was mentioned that we needed to do a week-long focus on postpartum, so then we gave birth to this new movement. So go to, once again, at um on Instagram, and then you can find um, Speak Move Change on uh, Facebook as well. Um, If you look us up, then you'll be able to see what the dates and the offerings are. I have a – we call it a link that I can share with you if you um, are going to be able to share with your listening audiences. I'm not sure if you have an email or whatever, but um, we can definitely share that because it's going to be happening until Saturday. So we would love for folks to jump in, jump on, and be part of the conversation and, you know, if we have time, I would love to talk about how lay people, not folks who are activists or advocates, but grandmothers, aunties, cousins, mm-hmm. partners, because that's super important to have men in these conversations, or those who don't identify as men, but are partnering with birthing people to actually do things with your family that are not about stats or anything, but just about community care and just family and just showing up for folks. So if we have time, I can unpack that, if, you know, but I know that y'all have a structure for the show, so I'm going to follow your lead.
2: Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm certainly happy to let you run wherever, wherever you think this needs to go. Although I do have some questions about, you know, sure, we, we come at this show as hosts, as also people who have something of a voice or an influence within the medical mm-hmm. world. Um, you know, I have a role in obstetric care as a uh, escalation in the middle of the night, helping take care of people who have uh, an acute crisis. Um, so, and and I have my own thoughts, but what do you think that individuals and institutions can do that have power and influence within medicine or, or other spheres um, relevant to, to these
4: outcomes? Yeah, um, I think actually we need to start paying more attention to birthing people. Um, you would think that would be automatic, but one of the things, it's not mine, but I love it. It's so potent and powerful and speaks to what is happening, is that we view the mother or birthing person as the rapper And we view the baby or babies, if it's multiples, as the prize. Hmm. And then once the prize comes out, the rapper gets tossed, right, or ignored. And so that hyper-focused on is baby well. And, you know, we want that, of course. We want all parties to come out on the other side well and being adequately cared for and loved on. But in this society, it's gotten flipped or We've, we've kind of X the mother just, or the birthing person as this conduit that this life that has more value as far as the system, um, you know, that life gets some more attention. And so we do the six week checkup and then that's it. But as I discussed and as you probably both know, that it's dangerous to just say, oh, they went to the six week checkup and that's it. You know, we have to keep looking and asking. I was just with someone who's 11 months postpartum. And I was checking on them because your mental health, like it, it, the stats show that we can die, um, so that's really important. The other piece is is that we need to do a greater work around um, the insidiousness of racism. You know, I stopped saying um, DEI because I did that work for many many years, and I don't. Uh, people, will power to you if you're still doing the work as a leader and a trainer in the, these spaces, corporate and grassroots spaces. But after I watched George Floyd die, and after my daughter, like you know, I just my position is that I'm doing work to train and develop people around racism and white supremacy culture and how it works and its impact. There's a um, a quote by um, Neely, what's his name, Neely Fuller, um, that says if you don't understand racism or white supremacy culture, what it is and how it works, everything that you think you do understand will only serve to confuse you. And that's my position that we need to be talking about this no matter what walk of life we're in, and especially around reproductive health, because we all came by way of a womb. Maybe somebody didn't. I just haven't heard yet. (laughs) We need to be in these conversations and making sure that we're asking these questions of the folks in our families who have just had babies, asking about our own birthing stories, if we're planning to have a baby, speaking to our families about what the history is. In my family, there's a history of preterm labor. There's a history of postpartum depression and psychoses. I wish I would have known, but we're not taught to tell these stories. And when you don't know the history, just like we ask about history of diabetes and other things, we don't end up having the information that we need to take care of ourselves and have agency and autonomy with our bodies. Um, I'll say one more thing. Um, Please
3: say all of just, the things, Miss Shani. This is
0: just so
4: wonderful. <laughs> you know, I love hearing y'all's voices, too. I love conversation. <laughs> um, but just it's really important for us to shop for our medical providers. In this case, the um, folks who are going to be providing our um, sexual reproductive care, um, just like we do for shoes, um, clothes, and cars, and all those other things. Somehow, our bodies are not as valuable as the things that we put on them or in them. And so it's really important for us to be able to give reviews. Like, there's the Earth app, and I love that my beloved sister, um, Kimberly, Um, uh, Seals Allers has the Earth app where you can get on that app and see what has been said about providers across the city and across the country and hear how they're treating people, hear whether they listen to folks or not, hear if they listen to you when you say you have an issue and if they say you don't need a test or you don't need to take this action, like have them write that down in the chart. It's like you said I don't need this test. Can you please write that down? That will actually show you your chart. It's amazing. Y'all are doctors. (laughs) I'm like folks don't want to show you the chart, but it's about your life and about your body. Mm. So, you know, these things are super important, but we just go in that white coat syndrome. We just listen and we don't trust that the pain I feel or the thought that I've had or my intuition even needs to be honored and explored with the person who is um, charged to partner with me and took an oath to make sure that they do no harm. So I think those things are really important for the general public to know so that we can not only survive but thrive.
3: Amen. <laughs> Ashe. Ashe. Um, what I did want to say, you, you, you made the point about, um, postpartum or what we now call in psychiatry, peripartum, right? Depression, because we know that mm-hmm. these concerns can also start in pregnancy. Yeah. Um, one of the things, especially for black women that makes it more difficult or less likely that they'll actually talk about it or want to address it is the fact that institutional stuff, like they, they fear that. They'll be perceived as being a bad mom. They fear that, you know, in the worst case scenario, their child will get taken away. Um, those things stand in the way, you know, the way that institutions are perceived in the community as well. So what what can institutions do? What can the government be doing to, to advance this cause? Yeah,
4: um, just thinking about policies and procedures, you know, one of the things that comes up for me, because I'm a trained social worker and I worked in child welfare for many years, and you just alluded to it. Um, if I if I would have told a provider back then when I had my baby girl, my second daughter, Jasmine, that I was having thoughts that this wasn't my baby, um, that I had thoughts of possibly harming her sometimes. It didn't act on it, but just the thoughts.
0: Right. Um, I
4: might have had, um, I was living in North Carolina at the time because I was a military wife. That's another piece that there are some populations that are in more danger of experiencing these inequities and these um, really adverse outcomes than others. And the military, you know, when I was a military wife, one of the things they told my former husband is, like, if we wanted you to have a wife and children, we would have issued you them with, like, we did your gun and your uniform. I'm like, really? You know, and the the treatment matched that statement. So um, just thinking about, you know, just how important it is for us not to weaponize these systems. And if I come and I ask for help, that your automatic thought is not, um, I'm a bad person, but just, like, how can I support? How can I make this safe for you to share? You know, right. like, there was just the incident you watched on the news, I'm sure you both did, where the family, you know, had a home birth and um, the baby had jaundice. I don't remember all the details, but the child ended up in, in, in child welfare hmm. because the system was like, wait a minute, you know, um, they they felt like they had more authority over what could happen with the baby than the actual parents, you know, and this happens with black folk all the time. You know, when I worked in child welfare for 12 years, there were so many babies that were taken right after they came out of their mother's womb because of the system and the way that it was designed. So I don't think that we should just throw out systems. I think that there are parents that need that covering. And even if you've done wrong, you still need to be treated like a human being, Absolutely. you know, but... These systems are designed to be suspicious, especially here in New York. I love my city, but I call it both beauty and the beast. I love how beautiful and nuanced it is, but it's a beastly place to live. And it's also very punitive in the way that the structures are, are, um, you know, have been developed and put in place. So policies and procedures are super important. Us being able to speak to our local politicians who we put in office about what their platform is, about Um, 12 months of leave, paid leave, about doulas getting adequately compensated, which they've just put that in. And not just putting it in, but putting it in and having it not take months and months for the monies to come through, because that's very oppressive as well. You know, and just us being able to question how these policies are put together. Even, and y'all are doctors, so forgive me. This is not a personal affront on you. But doctors are sometimes the hardest people to hold accountable for their negligence and malpractice. Like there are other fields that you can actually have more um an outcome of like justice and equity and accountability than you can with um, medical providers. And y'all might um, dispute what I'm saying, but I'm just hearing people speak and even thinking about my own journey with my daughter, like the rules around what actions you can take can be very oppressive as well. So those are the things that I'll say off the top of my head and from my heart about what folks can do and how these systems actually contribute to more and more harm being done to folks.
3: I think that's one of the, the, um, the goals of us having this show is to be able to um, receive input from the community and to help community members advocate for themselves in the medical like realm. Do you know what I mean? Um, So I, I don't at all disagree with what you're saying. I think that empowering others to speak up for themselves and and very importantly having physicians who um humanize their patients more understand their lived experiences more um understand history more that's that's a part of the goal so yes i agree with what you're saying i do
2: um and without disagreeing mm -hmm. with that i think another piece that uh, people who have any uh, influence um, or presence in this realm uh, is not just for individuals to be held accountable Um, But, you know, when when bad outcomes keep happening uh, over and over again, it's more than just an individual, right? People are being set up to fail, whether by training, education, resourcing, staffing, protocols that are in place, expectations that are set, and things like this. So I think uh, what we need to do is identify – and, you know, in Central and East Brooklyn, as I'm sure you know, our outcomes are basically not acceptable, um, particularly for um, for black mothers. So we need Mm -hmm. to look at – you know, where we're at, what we're doing, what's not working, do something better, and then hold ourselves accountable that that action has had the desired effect.
4: Absolutely. Um, I know that, um, you know, one of the pieces of legislature or or bundles of legislature um, is the Momnibus Act, um, you know, that was put forth by Congresswoman Underwood and Adams and also Cory Booker is a part of that and other members of the Black Maternal Health Caucus. Um, you know, introduce this compilation of bills um, to address and make investments in like the social determinants of health and um, to influence outcomes um, such as like housing or extending Medicaid so that folks could have coverage and not be worrying about not being able to go back to the doctor because they would have to pay out of pocket. Things like nutrition and transportation or like um, funding for community-based organizations or um, like I mentioned earlier about the military, like veterans being able to get Support um, because they're also a high risk group. You know all of these pieces that are super important for our well-being. The maternal health piece. Um, I'm sorry, the maternal mental health piece. Um, just lots and layers. And we need to, as community members, read up on these policies and procedures that affect our daily lives. And once again, this is critical because babies have to be born in order to forward life and community. And um, just the world, like humanity. And so it's important for us to do our due diligence and to be reading, um, checking, calling, you know, to see what's happening, being clear about who we're voting for and what they're saying about the Momnibus and other um, uh, correlated uh, legislation that's being put on the table for us to review and accept as um, necessary for our quality of life.
3: Excellent. Yes, thank you so much for bringing up the Momnibus Act. I definitely recommend that any folks, especially birthing people who um, have an interest in what, hmm, what our government can can offer us, or at least start to offer in terms of securing a healthy birthing experience um, for folks, definitely take a look at the Momnibus Act. I feel like Miss Benton Gibson is also calling out so many important things, the importance of voting and knowing that if you feel like these things are problematic, every single vote matters in this, you know what I mean? There's not an election that is irrelevant when it comes to fighting for equity and um, not what we're talking about today exactly, but definitely, you know, the undertone of what you're saying, Ms. Benson Gibson, and I I don't want to let that go uh, unsaid or unstated. Thank any you. advice or resources for our listeners who either themselves or family members, loved ones, um, birthing people in general who may get pregnant and confront the realities that we're discussing? Any tips for them?
4: Sure. Um, if you're considering bringing new life into the world, um, just do your due diligence, um, your research. Um <laughs> uh, what do they call it? They joke about uh Dr. Google. I can't remember what the term is like when <laughs> people are Google, like yeah, go into Google as the the conduit for them getting what they need. That's not enough. Um, but when you go to your appointment, um, whether you're expecting now or you're working towards um co creating life with your partner or well, however you do it, because people do it in different ways, um it's really important for you to Um, I was going to say arm yourself. I almost stopped myself and censored that. But yeah, arm yourself with the information that is necessary. Um, Questions like you can—you don't even—you may not even be able to think of the questions to ask. But there are plenty of sites because of what's happening and with the state of affairs with reproductive health in general, and then um, BIPOC folks specifically, where you can see a list of questions with that you can ask a provider to determine whether you want to stay with that person and be co-creating with them because it is a co-creation. It's not. There shouldn't be a power differential. You tell me what to do, and I just follow blindly what you say. Um, the other piece um, that I would offer up is that um, if you're pregnant or planning to get pregnant, start looking into what a doula is because there's lots of programming. Um, if you're eligible, you can get a free doula to support you. There's um, In Brooklyn, I work very closely with Healthy Start Brooklyn, By My Side Birth Support, and there are other doula um programs that can provide services for folks in their particular region or their district that they're in. Um so look into that so you don't have to pay out of pocket for these services that are being paid for by these different programs and, you know, you're entitled to it. You should go for it. Um I'm trying to think what else I want to say. Um look at watch aftershock. Now mind you, there are some folks who may not have the the um the bandwidth to deal with some of the stuff that comes up, because it talks about the death of two people, my daughter and also Ann, Amber Rose Isaac. Right. So that's going to be part of it. But I view the, the the film, and my daughter's life and her death is in the film and my family and the hurt and all of that. But I view it as a, a film that um, pushes hope as a possibility, right? It's up with hope because we see a live birth at a birthing center with a doula and midwives. Um, and you see the baby coming out on the other side. You see mom breastfeeding. You be, see her being loved on and coached um, and dad, you know, because that's a part right. of the equation. The other piece, I'm going to say this to the brothers, that folks that identify as men that are listening to this who are in partnership with birthing people with a mom, a mother, please do show up um, as a equal partner with the person that is carrying life in their body. You co-created together. So please do use your voice, your agency, speak up. Don't let them say focus on mom alone. Like she would not be there or they would not be there without you. Men need to be included in the equation. So if you have a partner, make sure that you invite them to the appointments and, you know, they, they know everything that they need to know and providers, make sure you, and this sounds basic, Look at them when you're talking about their babies. I've seen men be in the space, and they have not even looked at. The the focus is on mom and baby, and it's like the man is invisible. So let's please stop disrespecting partners and include them because they are the biggest allies for the birthing person and covering and protection as they go through the process, and they can be a partner for you in the journey as well as a provider. So those are the things that I have to share off the, um, like I said, the top of my head and from my heart.
2: Yeah, well, uh, Miss Shawnee, I definitely want to say thank you uh, for, for coming on the show. You've given us a lot to think about. And I feel like I can be a downer sometimes on the radio. So I do want to acknowledge, you know, one of the worst cases of medical abuse and experimentation of black particularly enslaved women uh, was J. Marion Sims, who's yes. often thought of as the, the father of the – Modern uh, gynecologist. Yes. Of, uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, his statue was taken down from in front of the New York Academy yes, of Medicine. It was. And we have a lot of work to do, and maybe that's just a symbol, but these institutions that seem to be made of stone and marble uh, are capable of change if we demand it and if we set that change in motion.
4: Absolutely. So- Thank you. And we're, we're shifting paradigms, but it's like sometimes it feels like it's um, turning the Titanic, Definitely. but it is doable if we just stay the course. And, unfortunately- and I just want to acknowledge
2: would you say? Oh no, we're running up against the end of the show, uh, Miss Shawnee. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we did want to end on a, on a song. Uh, just give one moment to introduce <laughs> what that song will be and what what its importance sure. and meaning is. Well, sure.
3: th- so the song I chose is one called Loi or Famo. It's a Haitian. Uh, <laughs> it's a Haitian song, um, mm-hmm. of the roots variety, by a group called Boyo Music, and it it really addresses what I, hmm. the aftershock piece because. The lyrics of the song, you know, at first you'll get you'll get a vibe for what I'm saying, and then and then you'll hear the music, and hopefully you can catch a vibe there too. But it's saying the lyrics say, "We are queens, captains of the ship, the middle pillar of the houses. Fire under the cauldron of life. Babies playing, we're expanding, protesting under big laughs. A sinking ship in the sea of hope."
2: Thanks so much for joining us, Mishani. Thank My you so pleasure. much Ms.
3: Benton Gibson. Take good
1: care.
4: Thank you. Be blessed. You too.
1: Si fais en bas, je tiens la vie, si bébé joué, dis-là, ta science, manifestation en bas.